0: Do you have a motto? Um, Not
1: a, motto, a motto? Yeah, remember yourself. Remember yourself. That would be, I think, all my work is about that, remembering myself, remembering the oneness.
0: Something I was thinking about is um, this idea of why we withhold. It's actually quite connected to what you just said, but why we withhold hold the true versions of ourselves. And I was thinking one thing that would be quite useful for people to think about is, is there a way of remedying that? Like, just what's the way to get to ourselves in a simple way?
1: The hiding thing is, you know, there, there's a, depends what level we're talking about. There's a psychological level of hiding, and then there's which actually affects the spiritual level of forgetfulness. But the reason we hide is abject terror, because there's aspects of us as we grow up that are not accepted by those around us. And then that becomes habitual over the years, and we just shut it down. We just keep shutting aspects of ourselves down. So being true to oneself is the most heroic, frightening thing one can do. And most of us just are not taught or don't have role models that do that. And we crucify, and we get crucified for actually doing that. So it's just a matter of sitting with oneself and just seeing how full of shit one is every day. And we all have probably 90% of our day there's some aspect of a mask that we're wearing. So it's just a weird version of getting love. But that love can be digested anyway because it's not our real love, so it's just vicious circle that keeps feeding on itself
0: so, so when you have like voices in your head that come up how do you how do you listen to your true self how do you recognize which version is you
1: it's a great question so if you have voices in your head if you're not schizophrenic and you're not on medication um the quieting the meditation part is a really good practice of that because when we hear these voices, if we get quiet enough, we know when the voice is actually something that's not our voice because it doesn't feel good when we follow through on it. Or if it actually scares us, which is usually a real voice, because we usually, for most of us, haven't had the courage to follow our own convictions. So the question is, are you getting kudos? Are you externally referent or internally referent? So that would be another way of saying it. Most of us are externally referent. So those voices are...
0: What that means?
1: Sure. So, for example... Um, you might come here today and we're going to have this talk and I know that you like the color red. So I put on a red shirt even though I don't like the color red. That's extremely referent. I wake up today going like, oh, she, likes the color. she really likes the color red, but I really feel like wearing blue today. I put on a blue, even though I know you actually really don't like blue. Actually, you've said to me, I really don't like blue. But I put on the color blue because that's my sense that day knowing fully well that I might not get your acceptance of it. That's internally referent. But that's a small thing. Most people, whether they are towing the party line or they're rebels, they're externally referent. What do I mean by that? Whether as a kid your families are in the financial world and you rebel and become a punk rocker, you're still at that point externally referent. You're rebelling against what your parents did. Or you get kudos by being a punk rocker because your parents were punk rockers. That's still externally referent. So we're very confused culturally because externally it might look a certain way. Only we ourselves can tell, right? So on that level, very few people are true to themselves and most of us can feel it when we're around someone who's true to themselves, because it's a very powerful frequency. You sit next to someone, they might not even say a word and you're like, whoa, this person's heavy. They got gravitas. That's that thing of being internally referent or true to oneself. Being true to oneself usually doesn't gain one friends, but the one or two people that come around actually will be someone similar to you. So most of us whore ourselves at the altar of, really, the consumption of consumptive culture. You know, externally referent is another way of
0: putting it. And also, when you do get to that sense, or or you know, try and get to that sense of of being true to your inner self, it doesn't. There's a level of comfort that means it doesn't matter who comes into your life. There's a peacefulness about it
1: absolutely i mean that's the biggest part of it but then that also means this whole addictive consumptive culture of ours that's based on not being full inside will, will lose its gloss so that's a part of the problem in this culture and then we're talking about inner to me there's two levels of inner first is hearing that inner voice and then there's a voice beyond that voice that actually is a spiritual stuff, what we call awakening so we first skip to this place of actually knowing this middle place of being true to oneself and then that also has to at some point be released the bigger voice of the oneness of things—that we are really one with things—but again, there are different layers of addiction that have to be released, and they're painful. It's not just drug addiction. When we're addicted, what is this addiction? Is anxiety. What's the anxiety? We're going to die. We're not here. We're not eternal. That's that first level of the self. The one beyond that is eternal. So there is no fear on that level.
0: And I was just thinking, maybe it'd be helpful to talk about a way that. People could do this in their daily work, in their communication with other people, with the way they send an email, the way they might discuss something or talk to someone in the elevator. Is there anything you could speak of that would talk to that?
1: Lovely question. Well, two things. One thing I always do myself and tell people to do is feel one's body. So as we're sitting here doing this interview, I'm actually feeling my feet. I'm feeling my hands. I keep making sure that my breath is in my belly. So that gives me a more real time. Am I anxious? Did she trigger something in me by your question? Is it a preference or aversion? Which are all tricky business. Well, I'm making room for my humanity. If I had a good sleep last night, I'm going to be more patient with you. If I slept four hours, I'm going to be more edgy. So, you know, not, not about perfection. The other part is, or another practice is to actually, something I do myself is, every morning I take a quick inventory of my day. So I'm going to run into this person who I usually have a problem with because I allow myself to be hustled by them. Or I run into this person that I'm afraid of, so I'm going to try to please them. Run into this person that triggers me, I'm going to try to crush them. End of the day, I do an inventory before I go to bed after the meditation. I'm just going like, wow, okay, I did well here. This guy that hustles me, I stayed conscious, it didn't happen. Or this person that agitated me i even got triggered so that kind of morning evening practice for a couple of minutes can be really profound because we can have a whole constant graph that we can put our dots on like this is going up this is going down while making room for our humanity which is the part that's really difficult because our humanity runs us but we act as if we don't have these human impulses which we all obviously do
0: yeah it's important to remember that we're human um it's something you talk about in your book, which I think is really interesting—not just you as a teacher or as an acupuncturist, but um, I think I think of this in, as the role of therapists and friends and family. Um, can you speak a little bit about the role of the guru mm. and how how we sit with each other in that way um, when people are taking information and learning from other people but how they take on themselves in regard to someone who plays that role
1: again great question especially in our culture so you know guru just means teacher but the difference is in our culture we are such worshipers of power that the guru thing becomes a place where we totally can abstain from our own responsibility in a situation which kind of ties into not kind of it actually ties into our looking for an external patriarch or matriarch where we just want to give everything over and not think for ourselves so on one level i feel like we all have to really become our own inner gurus i think that's the most safe way we can learn from everyone but the term guru and in the spiritual circle i've been in practice now for, for you know several decades the damage that i see from people totally abstaining from taking responsibility is profound. All the stuff that I talk about in the book, which is PMS, power, money, sex, really get distorted underneath that kind of energy. And it's not only damaging to the person, the student, it's actually damaging to the guru, the teacher, because both people are really not being a real responsibility. So we can learn, right? So you learn photography. You Would you call him your guru? No, you go learn from a photographer. The second we use the term guru... We give everything over. So this person is going to dictate what I eat. This person can dictate how I think. Um, even this life coach thing, I see this right now. It's like a new version of it. Like on one level, these people are brilliant. They can be very helpful. But, you know, you can also look at them and be like, well, you can't possibly give me all these pieces of advice because really what's your expertise? Are you a financial guru? Are you?" I see people abdicating their power left and right. Again, I'm talking about... Overall, taking responsibility. I'm not against life coaches. I'm not pro. It's just a matter of looking at it and seeing what that is. And to your question directly, yes, I really believe the ultimate gurus are our friends, definitely our lovers, because they f- for sure point out all the places where deeply twisted and how painful that is. Our parents, um, but I feel that's also where culture is going now. I feel like it's the time of the outer guru is slowly shifting, and it's the time of the inner guru. We have to take responsibility.
0: I don't know why I think of this, but so many people spend their days online. Is there any any have you found any sense of gurus within the internet?
1: Um, sets of gurus on internet, there there are. Well, the guru is the perfect internet, just in terms of how it teaches us how checked out we are, because I just find it's, un, it's an amazing drug. I mean, it's an amazing drug. How it just alters our consciousness and can totally shift our way of being in the world. Um, you know, the teachings of some of the best gurus through time are actually on the internet right now. That's an amazing thing about it. So I wouldn't say it's the internet internet per se as much as all that information is really out there. But um, does that answer your question? Is that what you're asking?
0: I think so. I mean, I think the reason why I come to it is I feel that it's a space where we could teach more. Um, There could be more um, sense of the inside, In the computer. (laughs) I don't know yet how that's going to be, but I think it's something that we need to think about. Particularly, um, I was reading an article about connection and how um, a lot of younger people are unable to communicate and unable to talk to each other. And I think one one way, with the idea of Facebook and things like this, that it might be worth us considering, um, just in general, ways to find ways to connect within that space but but, that connect us to each other more and more and um, within this world. And I don't know what it is, but it's something I'd like to think about and I'd like us all to think about.
1: Well, I love what you're saying because what you're saying is you're taking a Tai Chi, Judo, Aikido approach because this force is not going anywhere. So how do you meld with it? Yeah, so I'm right there with you. So first part is to actually see the, the, the negative and positive sides of it. The second part is to take into account... That people actually don't want to connect. People are actually very connected, disconnecting, even though that's what they crave unconsciously. So they will always go for the aspartame instead of the fruit juice because it's just something about it. But I totally agree with you. I feel like there are so much there is so much available in terms of internet connections if someone guides it that way. I use technology all the time in those terms and you know, It's like money. It's, you, if you're connected, you can use money and connect more. If you're disconnected, you can use money. So technology to me is the same thing. Is where is it going? We are living at a time where it is becoming a police state, our country as well as everywhere else. So I also really have an eye on that, how so much of these connections are going to be regulated. Because the nature of these sort of fascist systems, which I believe every government pretty much will lend itself to that to protect its own power, is to shut that down. And I feel that's a discussion no one's having. We can't just focus on the spiritual aspects of it, like what's happened to that part of it. There's a real fight going on right now on the Internet in terms of control from government forces and civil. So I'm right there with you. I don't have an answer for it, but I'm right there with you. I think it's very important, and that's a great way of doing it. I don't know per se if things like Facebook are connection because one of the things that I see with it is just this aspect of it's another consumptive collection of this and that. At the same time, I hear all the time, people meet a lovely old friend on it, and then they're, they're best friends. So, again, nothing is good or bad, but these are. That's, I will leave that as a question. I think that's a great question.
0: I think we've, we've somewhat answered this, but how do you hear yourself? Mm-hmm. I just think that's a really important important thing to think about and maybe talk a little more, just how how do you hear yourself?
1: I think that's the only question. <laughs> I think that's the most important question. I think that's the only question. I think we all have to really deal with it, so I would say we have to become aware of how anxious we are. We use everything, in my experience as a clinician for 30 years, is to hide that anxiety. The anxiety thing is really huge. So, dealing with anxiety, anxiety is probably one of the biggest pieces of feeling, mental construct, abject terror, that keeps us away from hearing ourselves. So first and foremost is to create some space where there's some quietitude. Meditation can be very helpful. Just unplugging. I mean, it's amazing for me, thinking how much just in the 35 years I've lived in this country, how much new forms of disconnection there is. Before you had your TV, then it became cable TV, then it became, you know, your cassette players and record players. And the level right now has become exponential. I mean, I just walk down the street, as we all do, and we all complain about it, and people bump into us with their supercomputer phones, and no one's really here. We're in hyperspace all the time. So the first part is to actually pull ourselves back not as a monk, but for half an hour a day, you know, one day a week, unplug. If you, if one tries to do that, one realizes how anxious one actually is. So that quietened that anxiety down, not that one even quietens it as much as one has a different relationship with it. That'll allow oneself to hear oneself. Making art is an amazing way. Make collages, write, take pictures. I mean, always where one quiets oneself is actually where that voice comes in. And as I'm thinking about your question, it's not just how does one hear one's it's like how does one stop putting cotton balls in one's ears? The self is talking really loudly. It talks in sleep, it talks in through our friends, it talks in our actions, it talks when we stub our toe on the bed. The self is screaming out loud at this point. And we have managed to do this amazing thing of just shutting it down. So to me, it's not even finding the voice as much as we have to figure out how we're actually making sure la, 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 our fingers and our ears and, you know, covering our
0: eyes. And how we make friends with ourself. Um, I think that's something I've been thinking about a lot, that we, we do have a shadow self, and it's something that you have talked about. And it's such a different question, but um, how do we, how do we do that? How do we allow room for the parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily like or that we are afraid of? To, um, to just allow them to be there, the less-than-positive parts of ourselves?
1: Well, the whole thing about the shadow, it becomes a shadow because it's cut off from us. So the idea that you're talking about, is to, it's called integrating that part. So first and foremost, we have to become aware of it. The way we become aware of it is we've got to figure out what we're projecting it onto others. Because the shadow part, I mean, to do a quick synopsis, let's say, for example... As a child, I was ridiculed for being thin. So then that becomes my shadow part. Then I project it onto other people when I grow up. So once time I run into someone who's thin, I'll make fun of them, which is usually what we do, or hate them or fight them, which is what we do culturally. So the first part is to become aware of which part of ourselves we have cut out. Then the second part is to actually start owning it. Which means every time I get triggered, i got to look at it be like, why did I just get triggered by this person? Oh, they're thin. Oh, what is that about? Oh, it's because my parents didn't like thin children, whatever that full thing is. And then I integrate it into myself. So the whole idea with Jung or all the archetypes is integrating that, to actually go into the underworld, which is our unconscious, and to integrate that part of ourselves. But all that denotes a level of awareness that most of us have to actually cultivate. We're not born with it. And the wild thing about the times that we're living in right now is how spirituality is actually used as another way of numbing. So our cultural models aren't really working, right? It's very easy to see that you're numbing if you're dropping 10 hits of acid or shooting 10 bags of dope or that's easy to see. Consuming, that's easy to see. Oh man, I just can't stop shopping. But if you're like, well, I'm just doing this teacher, I'm doing that teacher, it's incredible how the shadow can really be cut off. And it's amazing how a lot of people who talk about shadow work are just, it's insane to me because I just look at them and I look at what's going on. It's another form of ego control.
0: Well, you can be an inmate in you know Louisiana or you can be um, a fisherman in Saratoga and be as spiritual as someone, you know, you're, it seems that there's a miss. I don't even know. It just seems like it's people aren't understanding what that really means and that the words aren't correct. I feel like we, we, we seem to have a language that a lot of people are now using. I don't exclude myself from that. But the the, the language doesn't create the thing. And um, that, that seems quite important.
1: Oh, I think that's brilliant. I think you're absolutely onto something. Uh, hitting it on, on the head right there. The language is actually masking the reality of it. So the inmate is actually our shadow. I mean, what do we do with our shadow? It's just, we have this most ridiculous... I mean, we can just go off on the prison system. Over 2 million people in prison in this country. And that's our shadow. I mean, what are we doing? This is what we do with our shadow. That's a great image of that. We take them, we stick them, lock them away. No, we don't want to look at it. And what happens? They come out even more violent criminals, which is exactly what happens to so that part of us has been cut off. And in terms of awakening, absolutely. I mean, regular people... Right, which is what you're talking about, who who aren't doing meditation. I mean a fisherman actually is meditating because what's fishing? It's meditation. An inmate has to face themselves because they don't besides the survival of being in that kind of environment, there's a level that you just you're sitting there dealing with yourself twenty four a day without having TV, iPhone, this and that. So you're absolutely correct about that. The problem is this mass hypnosis where people under the guise of this teacher, this yoga, that martial arts are actually propelling this mass hypnosis that we're better than. And what are they doing with their shadow? They project it onto other people. Oh, you're not doing my yoga. You're not doing my meditation. So it's interesting how that becomes its own little cult.
0: Right, just because someone's doing the work doesn't mean that they're better than someone else, because also we all have our own timings, our own paths. But I think even I, I mean, I definitely struggle with that idea of, well, I'm doing the work, you're not. (laughs) And I think it's it's pretty important for us to, like, continually remember that, that that doesn't mean people aren't or that, you know, it's different. It's different for each person, and the way that they're going to live through that is different.
1: That's probably the hardest thing to remember. And I think that's really lovely what you're saying. And again, it goes back to take our humanity into account. We're all wounded. Everyone's in process. So there's that part of us that's going to pass judgment. The part that where you're doing the work is actually one remembers more and more that we're all the same. So one starts having more compassion. But then again, if you haven't slept in two nights because your kid's crying and you got a food allergy and you just stub your toe, also make room for the humanity you're going to be an asshole and you got to catch yourself from being an asshole, pull yourself back and be that. But... The fragrance of actually doing the work is softness, a gentle softening, and that takes a long time. There are no shortcuts. One of my biggest sort of beefs right now with what's going on is this, come to this weekend, read this book, do these four steps, and it will be. And, you know, we can struggle for decades and decades and decades without even getting a glimpse of this piece,
0: of the big piece. I was thinking a little bit of the path of least resistance, and what you were just talking about reminded me of that. How do we soften? How do we um, learn to start accepting and to stop resisting things?
1: By taking risks of being vulnerable, right? So I can have a fight with a friend. I can have a fight with a lover. I can, it can make me very hard because of my wounding. So then I can just be like give them the finger, give them the cold shoulder, don't answer the phone calls, or I can be like, wow, I'm gonna take a risk right now and leave a message, leave a call and say, I'm terribly sorry, I'm really hurt, always coming from the eye, and make a stand into vulnerability, not knowing that the person might actually come back and say, you're a jerk, I don't wanna to talk to you ever again, but in the face of that, I actually make myself vulnerable. To me, vulnerability is the answer, and a daily practice of humility. I'm not talking some Mother Teresa heroic thing, because we do that, too, as a way of numbing. I'm talking actually small steps that nobody sees but ourselves, just for us. Because ultimately, we come here alone, we leave here alone. So we have to actually learn to be in relationship with that person. And I see a lot of people who have serious illness or who are dying, and that's really the only time you find out what kind of relationship you have with yourself, because most of us fake Many things most of the time.
0: You talk a lot about intent. Mm-hmm. How do we constantly examine and re-examine what our intent is?
1: So a part of that, I mean, there's action, there's intention. So what, the thing that I always say is we can do the same action with two different intentions and get two different results. So I'm going to come visit you. And I feel like it's really my duty to come visit you, even if I don't want to. So I come visit you. And then I come there, and I'm agitated, and I'm mean to you. And you're like, what the hell's wrong with you? I can feel like, oh, she's not feeling well today. She's a good friend of mine. I really want to go see how she's doing and bring you some soup and look after you and be a lovely meeting. You'll feel better. I'll feel better. Same action, different intention. So a lot of our culture, we don't really examine intention. We're so focused on the action. Well, I went and saw Poppy, so my work is done. It's like, well, no, you didn't want to go, so why did you actually do that? Um, So intention is actually, again, the same thing to examining. It's quieting one's and to examine to see which side's up, which side's down.
0: What advice would you give someone who is suffering?
1: Hmm. My advice wouldn't be to someone who's suffering, because if they're suffering, they know they're suffering, they're going to find a way out. My advice would be to the person who thinks they're not suffering to be like, really? Okay, let's look a little deeper and see what's going on. Now, you'll have one in a million who actually are have done the work, are really aligned. For the majority of us, we don't even know we're suffering. So the whole thing to put an end to suffering, you have to realize you're suffering. For many of us, we actually things are really going great. Then we start slowly uncovering things like, oh, I'm not even intimate with my intimates. I'm always focused from email to email. I'm focused from shop to shop. I'm focused from acquisition to acquisition. From repressing people, repressing my emotions. So we're all suffering. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to live consciously. The fact that we're born to die, the fact that everything around us dies, that's profound stuff to face every day. Most of us work on numbing that because we're so anxious around it. So suffering and its end come from by first actually admitting or becoming aware that there's suffering going on. Now, it's not always clear-cut. There's a lot of beauty amidst the ugliness. There's a lot of ugliness amidst the beauty but to make a room for that and not as a way of making oneself neurotic as the whole point of this stuff is to be fully here a lot of people have these near death experiences a lot of them it's very interesting what happens is they get softer they get more fun-loving the things aren't as serious why because they leave their bodies they realize the oneness They realize the big joke they come back in and they can live their lives fully now If you're a mother who's dying of cancer and dealing with those things, that's not an easy thing to remember. If you're a person whose lover just betrayed you, not an easy thing to remember. You're someone whose house has been taken away, not an easy. So there has to be compassion for the human component. At the same time, we have to keep an eye on a bigger prize, which is actually everything is us. We are everything. And it's a tricky balancing act because we can definitely use either one to get lost in. But I would say that would be a part of that. To answer to your question.
0: And what's your daily routine?
1: Daily routine. So my daily routine is um, a pranayama practice. So it's a breathing practice in the morning because I find that actually helps quieten things down. Then a 20-minute sit. And then just some simple exercises. And I find that if one does a routine, like I'm not a gym guy, but I have a pretty strong martial arts practice, but I find just a couple of Simple things. could be a couple of asanas, push-ups, sit-ups, a couple of things to just pull me into my body, and then a form. So that's probably something I do every day. Then some nights, depending how tired I'm not or I'm not, I will actually sit. The rest of the day is this constant practice of being in my body. And another thing that really helps me is I take a nap every day. So actually shutting down in the middle of the day for 20 minutes and resetting myself is really, really helpful. Another practice is to observing how much I use the computer because in the middle of my work a lot of patients can write me emails and So actually modulating that Uh, part of my day is actually not a day but i would say part of my week is making art it's actually sitting down and making collages so things and then there's always this part of feeding the little boys so the part of it will be a motorcycle ride or working on a car or something that actually has nothing to do with my the rest of my day and then part of the week is alone time actually spending time alone which is difficult for a lot of people because we're so
0: surrounded but I would say that's a part of it. Great.